Good morning. Grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, you should be able to find that on page 1040. Let's uh, read from God's Word, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's Word. Of all the questions I'm asked on Revelation, most are about the millennium. Where do you stand on the thousand years? I think I have found a fitting answer. Walter Mallory was a longtime associate of Thomas Edison, and he once learned that Edison tried over 9,000 experiments to devise a new battery, but none of them worked. Mallory says to Edison, isn't it a shame that with the tremendous amount of work you've done and haven't been able to get any results, and Edison turned And with a a smile, replied, results? Why, man, I've gotten a lot of results. I know several thousand things that won't work. (laughs) 
My attempts to interpret chapter 20 feel like that. I've tried several thousand things that won't work. But if we try, I think the Lord will bless our efforts and send us away nourished with hope. I mean, after all, chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. I have read, you have heard. By the end, hopefully, we'll know how to keep. I'd like to answer five questions. First, how does Revelation 20 advance the story? How does Revelation 20 advance the story of John's vision? Revelation is about God's work in Jesus to replace all rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom. And we learned from chapter 11, verse 18, that in order to get there, Jesus must destroy the destroyers of the earth. Destroy the destroyers of the earth. Well, chapter 12 to 17 then unveiled the destroyers of the earth. In chapter 12, we met a dragon. In chapter 13, the beast and the false prophet rise to execute the dragon's plan. And then in chapter 17, we learned of Babylon the Great. Well, to bring heaven on earth, Christ must first destroy these destroyers. And that's what John's vision reveals from chapter 17 onward. Only it does so in the reversed order, which you can see there on your screen. At the end of chapter 17 and into chapter 18, Babylon falls. Christ then conquers the beast and false prophet. In chapter 19, all that remains is the dragon. In chapter 20, advances the story by telling us how the Lord will end Satan forever. But in the process, we will also learn about the saints' vindication, which Jesus promised to all who endure earlier in the book. Second question, where are these ideas or themes rooted? So the ones we just read, where are these ideas or themes rooted? Once again, John's vision is combining multiple Old Testament contexts. He's just weaving them together. I I won't mention them all, but a few big ones uh, are Genesis chapter 3. In verse 2, you heard John name the dragon that ancient serpent. That serpent who was more crafty than any beast of the field. That serpent who first said, did God actually say? Adam and Eve enjoyed a paradise like no other until... The serpent deceived them. In Revelation 20, the serpent seeks to destroy a new creation ruled by a new Adam. But this Adam succeeds in ending the serpent's crafty plots forever. 
Another Old Testament passage is Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24 speaks of a future judgment, and in verse 21, Isaiah says this, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. And then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. I think Revelation 19 to 21 follows this prophecy pretty well. God punishes the kings of the earth in chapter 19. Chapter 20 then shows the imprisonment of Satan, who leads the rebellious hosts of heaven. And then after many days perhaps symbolized by a thousand years, they will be punished. Chapter 21 then, uh, of Revelation then has the glory of Christ's reign that shames the sun. Daniel 7 is another passage. In Daniel 7 we find God ruling in favor of the saints after defeating the worst of the beastly kingdoms. We've got this horn Right, this wicked horn, uh, this power that would make war against the saints on earth, and he prevails over them until chapter 7, verse 22 of Daniel. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So Revelation seems to be drawing from this prophecy, but then helping us see its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And then one more, far too briefly though, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. It's a big one here, especially in verses uh, 7 to 10. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Ezekiel presents this mysterious ruler named Gog. He is from the land of Magog, He is the worst of the worst. He gathers a mysterious army, and I say mysterious not only because the army is so vast, but also because he's the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. says this a few times in Ezekiel 38. The chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Well, Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 26, describes Meshech and Tubal as already lying dead in Sheol. And so it's possible that Gog's army is a rather unconventional one. He rules evil nations likened to those from the underworld. They are diabolical enemies. The picture, though, is that Gog gathers a vast army against the saints dwelling safely in a new Jerusalem under a new David. But no matter how great the enemy, they remain safe in God's presence. And then it breaks open into a new, a new temple, a new creation at the end of Ezekiel, right? Same kind of pattern we're seeing in the book of Revelation. Now, I won't pretend to have Revelation 20 figured out, But I can say with confidence that if you're going to understand the broader points 
of the chapter, these Old Testament passages are crucial to keep in mind. Third question. What does the vision itself portray? What does the vision itself portray? Well, in the first scene, John sees Satan bound. An angel descends from heaven, holding a key. Elsewhere in Revelation, to have a key means that you have authority over a particular realm. This angel has authority over the bottomless pit, or some of your translations might say the abyss. Right? And if you remember from chapter 9, verse 1... An angel releases demons from the abyss. So this is being pictured as as a holding place for hostile demonic powers. And the angel seizes the dragon and binds him and he throws him into the pit and he shuts it and he seals it over him for a thousand years. Now this differs, I think, from what happens in chapter 12, verse 9. Right there, at Jesus' ascension... Satan is cast from earth, I mean from heaven to earth, and he comes with great wrath on the earth. Satan is very active. Uh, he has followers, for example. Those who reject Jesus are called a synagogue of Satan in chapter 2, verse 9. In chapter 2, verse 13, his throne is said to be on earth. Uh, evidence of his throne uh, across the world is idolatry false teaching, and persecution. You see this in chapter 2, verse 10 and 24, and then also in chapter 3, verse 9. Then in chapter 12, verse 13, Satan tries to devour God's people, symbolized by, with, with, with the woman right, and her children. Satan then empowers the beast to deceive the nations against the church in chapter 13, verse 7. And he's allowed to do this for 42 months, which we talked about, symbolized the entire history of the church between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return. But here, God binds Satan to the abyss. He will not be able to deceive the nations any longer, verse 3 says, until the thousand years were ended. Now, folks debate whether to take the thousand years literally or symbolically. I lean toward the symbolic. I mean, elsewhere in Revelation, John uses these multiples of a thousand to signify completeness, like the 144,000 and 7-4 and the dimensions of 12,000 in chapter 21. Sometimes a thousand also is used uh, figuratively in the Old Testament, like when the Lord wants to stress the enduring nature of His covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations. It symbolizes a long time. Others have suggested that there's a nod here to the, the Jewish literature that was circulating in John's day in which a thousand years signified the ideal reign of Adam. Adam never reached that ideal. He only lived to 930 because of his sin and his failure to crush the head of the serpent. By contrast, Jesus starts the final state with a thousand-year rule over the serpent, 
meaning he's the new and better Adam. The next scene comes in verses 4 to 6, the saints reigning. The saints reigning. John sees these thrones and seated on the thrones, he seems to include the martyrs here. He sees the souls, it says, of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. The next group could be a further description of the martyrs. More likely, John is broadening it out, though, here to, to a group. It's, it's all who had, who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, which often results in martyrdom. But not, every, not everybody dies that way. So we're looking at all the saints, collectively, who belong to Jesus and don't worship the beast. Notice, Revelation identifies Christians by the way, by the way they live in obedience to Jesus. They bear witness in word and deed, even if it means death. They are shunned, hated, decapitated by the world, but here they sit enthroned. The ESV says, to them authority to judge was committed, uh, but the way it's worded here actually alludes back to Daniel 7.22, which I read uh, earlier. And in that context, judgment was given not to the saints, but for the saints, meaning on, on their behalf, to their advantage. And I think that's the better translation here. So for centuries, God's people are suffering. We saw the picture of the martyrs under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, until, you've, until you avenge our blood, right? And here God is finally vindicating them. He's giving judgment in favor of the saints. And with that also comes their reign into verse 4. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, some take that to mean they came to life spiritually in this age like when they're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2. Or when they die and their soul goes to be with Jesus, Philippians 1. So John must be seeing the saints as they are now, spiritually reigning with Jesus. I don't think that works. This word, they came to life, is also said of Jesus in chapter 2, verse 8. He died and came to life. Not spiritually, but bodily. Also, look at verse 5. The rest of the dead, meaning the ungodly dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And everyone, that you read on this, everyone agrees that coming to life there, in verse 5, refers to a bodily resurrection for judgment later in verses 11 to 15. He also says in verse 5, 
This is the first resurrection. And that word, resurrection, everywhere else in Scripture refers to bodily resurrection. So I take John to see the church risen and reigning bodily with Jesus while the ungodly dead stay in their graves for the thousand years. I know it presents its own problems we'll talk about later. But that's the way I'm reading it. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So what you're getting here is that if you belong to Jesus, you only die once. And then Jesus will raise you bodily to reign with Him forever. If you reject Jesus, you will stay in the grave until Jesus raises you to die again. Only that second death will be much worse. You don't go to the grave again, you go to the lake of fire, which will come later in chapter uh, 20. Which brings us around to a third scene here in John's vision, Satan vanquished. Satan vanquished, the saints protected also. Verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, where'd they come from? Right? I mean, who are they? I mean, that's a natural question, especially after chapter 19, verse 21, the nations were all slain by the sword that came from Jesus' mouth. So, this has led some to see verses 7 to 10, narrating the same battle mentioned in chapter 19. And if it's the same battle, then these nations are not a new group. Rather, John is retelling the story again from a different angle. Chapter 20, in other words, when you start chapter 20, verse 1, it's taking us backwards. We're now viewing the present age from a different angle, and it's running us to the end again with Armageddon. Right? Did this already in chapter 16, runs us to Armageddon. Then it did it again in 19, runs us to Armageddon. And they would say, well, it's doing it again, chapter 20. But I'll, I think that's a valid approach, but I'll, I'll speak to the weaknesses of that view more in a minute. Another option says that some from the ungodly nations must survive Jesus' return. Uh, perhaps they'd point to a, a place like Daniel 7.12 where the Lord wipes out the big, the big dogs but allows some of the other rebellious nations to persist. Or Zechariah 14 or Isaiah 65. People from many nations live and procreate during the thousand years they tolerate Jesus' rule, but their true colors show when Satan is released once more. I struggle with that take also because it seems clear that none from the rebel nation survived the second coming. So that has led others to say the nations must be the rest of the dead. 
which John said in verse 5, would not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So in this view, the rest of the dead have been raised and Satan's now leading them again against, against uh, God's people. So in this view, the four corners of the earth, are not talking about the four points of the compass on the globe, the four corners of the earth are like the gates to the underworld. In chapter 7, verse 1, we saw four angels holding this back. But the idea here would be that now the dead are raised and released for a final assault with Satan at the helm. Or, another option, the nations could symbolize an army of demons and spirits of the dead. Angelic armies, sometimes in Scripture, represent earthly nations like Daniel 10. Also, I mentioned earlier that Gog is already a very mysterious character in Ezekiel. He's like the dragon in Revelation, and his armies are diabolical, likened to cities from the underworld. So Gog and Magog may point to Satan in this final army of of demons. Whoever they are, Whoever they are, they march up over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints and the, uh, and the beloved city. Some take that to mean the earthly city of Jerusalem, like over in Palestine, or as symbolizing God's people. So you read it, uh, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the, of the saints. That is the beloved city. So the further description of God's people Uh, I think the beloved city is the new Jerusalem of the new creation that is already present when this happens. In chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, the marriage of the Lamb to His bride happened at Jesus' return. And then chapter 21, verse 2 indicates that the bride is the new Jerusalem. In other words, I'm seeing the thousand years as the inaugural stage of the final state. The saints reign with Jesus in the new Jerusalem and their security will never be shaken even when God releases the wicked for judgment. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes their enemies. Verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the swift end of the dragon and his evil hordes. They don't even touch the saints. This, this scene doesn't even affect them in, in their eternal state. So, that's the gist of the vision. At least the way I'm putting things together. Alright? And of course, I also implied some things about timing. If you... If you caught on to them, which leads us to question number four, when do these events occur? When do these events occur? This is hard to figure out because visionary sequence is not always historical sequence, and that is an important thing to remember when you're reading literature like this. 
Just because John sees things in a particular order doesn't mean that's how they're playing out exactly chronologically in history. Historical sequence is something we have to infer by putting a whole lot of other scriptures together inside and outside the book of Revelation. And sometimes we just don't have enough information. And sometimes we're just plain blind and cannot see what's there. Besides that, you have to account for the symbolic nature of this prophecy. And sometimes it's hard to discern when he's moving in and out of, uh, uh, of that and, and what exactly is happening. So, there's been attempts throughout church history to put these things together, right? And some, some would say these events happen prior to Jesus' return. So, they take what's called a post-millennial view, right? Millennial just means thousand years. Post means after, right? So, they believe Jesus returns after the thousand years. They see chapter 19 as already fulfilled at Jesus' ascension and the judgment of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Satan is then bound such that the gospel will advance without hindrance until humanity gradually progresses to a golden age on earth, lasting a long time. And only after that golden age does Jesus come back. I struggle with this view the most, personally, because from the way I'm reading it, nothing close to the universal events of Revelation 19 transpired in A.D. 70. Uh, this view also assumes a particular dating of the book of Revelation to it, be, to it being written prior to A.D. 70. And I just, historically, there are good reasons to believe this book was written after A.D. 70, closer to 90. Also, Revelation doesn't present history progressing to a golden age prior to Jesus' return. We can agree that the gospel is going to keep going forward and advancing without hindrance. I mean, they put Paul in prison, he says, but the gospel isn't bound. Right? But it, but it does so, when the gospel goes out, it does so in the face of great tribulation and increasing persecution until Jesus returns. And that's the consistent witness of the New Testament. Another approach is the all-millennial view. Now, you might think, all-millennial, well, no millennium. No, this, this actually isn't the best label. Um, because they do believe in a millennium. They just believe it started with Jesus' ascension. Perhaps it's better to call it inaugurated millennialism. So this view looks at chapters 19 to 20. I kind of mentioned this a while ago, and it sees, okay, you've got this battle at the end of chapter 19, and uh, lo and behold, he quotes from Ezekiel 38 and 39 there. And then you read chapter 20, and you get down to 7 to 10, and you see another battle. And lo and behold, it quotes from Ezekiel 38 and 39 there too. 
So these must be talking about the same battle, right? Uh, also, in both places, he, John calls it the war. And in both places, we see Satan deceiving the nations of the earth. And so, so he must be describing the same event. Also, it doesn't make any sense to bind Satan from deceiving the nations if all the nations were killed. In chapter 19, verse 21. And so you follow that kind of that line of thought, which is, which is good, good observations. It must mean that chapter 20, there's a fancy word, recapitulates. It's going back and telling the story again, running us to the end. Which, for this view, means that the thousand years are right now. They symbolize our spiritual life. The thousand years started with Jesus' ascension and they close at Jesus' return. Okay, so, so they symbolize our spiritual life and reign with Jesus throughout the present age. I think that's a more compelling view than the post-millennial view. But if you take that view, it requires you to say that the binding of Satan is not absolute when that seems to be exactly what verses 1 to 3 are saying. Uh, there's also a contrast, right, between, between chapter 12, verse 12, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. That's this age. There's a contrast between that and the age of chapter 20, where Satan can't deceive the nations at all. Also, the amillennial view requires that the resurrection in verse 4 is spiritual, not bodily. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I just don't think that fits the language or the context. Although some might push back and say, well, he's alluding to Ezekiel 38 and 39 here. If you read Ezekiel 37, there's a resurrection there. So... That's fair. All right. That's just my problems with it. Then there's the uh, premillennial view. I think you've seen me tip my hand, to tip my hat towards this. Jesus returns before the millennium. Jesus returns before the millennium. Chapter 20 does not recapitulate. It describes how Jesus' return initiates the fulfillment of numerous promises given for the suffering church earlier in the book. Promises like the saints reigning on the earth and sitting on thrones with Jesus. I also believe the temporal markers of this passage place the thousand years following Jesus' return. For example, uh, did you notice when the Lord casts Satan into the lake of fire, the beast and the false prophet are already there. And when did they get there? They were put there at Jesus' return in chapter 19, verse 20. So, there are different versions of premillennialism out there. I won't get into all those, but just know that you can be a premillennialist and not have to embrace all the crazy theology of left behind stuff. All right? So, it's actually. Uh, Justin Martyr and Papias and Irenaeus were pre-millennial 
Very early view. But premillennialism has its own difficulties. For example, how does John use this prophecy from Ezekiel 38 and 39 to describe two separate battles? You've got to figure that out. Uh, in verse 7, where do these ungodly nations come from? If Jesus already bumped them off at Armageddon. I gave you some options earlier. Also, instead of seeing the resurrection of the just and the unjust as one event, when Jesus returns, this view separates them on either side of a thousand-year period. Again, thousand years doesn't have to be literal. It could be a long time, but it separates the resurrection of the just and the unjust on either side of that thousand-year period. So you've got to account for that. Not to mention the obvious that nowhere else in all of Scripture is there a thousand years talked about. I mean, you've you've got to do some uh, reading in in the Old Testament a lot to to account in a certain way you're going to read those passages like Isaiah 65 and others uh, to, to account for what's going on. And all of that confusion has led a few others to say that we're pressing the symbolism too far with our questions. Our culture, our interpretive history has, 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 we're bringing things to the text and the text itself is not seeking to answer. Some uh, would say, yes, the millennium follows Jesus' return, but it has a narrower function. The vision isn't meant to answer our chronological curiosities. It's only meant to picture the meaning of the martyr's triumph. So here's here's Richard Richard Bauckham, for instance. The theological point of the millennium is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs, that those whom the beast put to death are those who will truly live And for much longer, a thousand years, it's a state that evil can never again reverse. And that's all. That's all the point of a thousand years is. Um, So, that's a few ways the church has tried to to wrestle with these things and figure out the timing of these events. And you can have fun with all that. More seriously, though, these, these difficulties should make us slow to elevate our millennial position as a test of fellowship in a local church and quicker to pray together, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. No matter where we fall on the timing, how should this vision impact us? How should this vision impact us? For starters, the bigger question isn't when the millennium comes, but whether you're with Jesus. Who do you belong to? Who rules your life now? Have you turned from evil and chosen to follow Jesus? The millennium we see here is for the faithful who follow Jesus. 
The blessing of the first resurrection belongs to those who turn from the beast and devote their lives to making Jesus known. If you seek power in this world without Jesus, you'll be sorry. You will perish with Satan. Your end will be the lake of fire. But if you humble yourself to serve Jesus, if you trust in His power to save you and forgive you and lead then you will rule with Him. His blood will cover your sins. He will save you from the second death because He died that death in your place. Also, remember that evil will not prevail. Remember that evil will will not prevail. I mentioned earlier Satan's throne on earth. But you get these other places in Scripture like 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Elsewhere, Satan's work is tied to tempting with sin, blinding the ungodly, snatching away the gospel, standing uh, behind idols that people worship, deceiving the world, threatening with death, hindering missionary travels, accusing the saints, persecuting the church, harming the sick, causing depression. You live long enough in this present evil age with that kind of dragon and you start having doubts. But Revelation 20 reminds us that God has absolute power over the dragon. Satan is not God's equal opposite. He's not gaining the upper hand ever. God's victory is never in doubt. Satan is under God's control and he has an end. Chapter 12 showed us already how Jesus' cross and resurrection ousted Satan from having a place in heaven. It also told us that we conquer the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. And then here we see just one angel, just one angel binding Satan to the the abyss. At the end, the Lord casts Satan into the lake of fire. The new and better Adam will not allow Satan to threaten his new and better creation. You see, the state of the saints after Jesus returns will be even better than it was in Eden. Because the dragon was able to deceive and lead them astray, and here they won't. He won't anymore. Do not fear the dragon. Do not listen to his lies. Good will prevail over evil. Jesus will finish the victory over evil that he secured at the cross. The millennium also encourages us to stay faithful in suffering. Stay faithful in suffering. Consider how this vision would have helped the saints in Smyrna. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus tells them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. What you are about to suffer, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. For ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. If you got a message from Jesus like that, I mean, what are you thinking about? 
The devil's about to throw us into prison. What about our kids? What are they going to do to us there? What does tribulation mean? Are they going to starve? Starve us? Are they going to threaten us? Interrogate us? Will they torture us? Are they going to rape us? And in that moment, what keeps you faithful unto death? A vision of you reigning with Christ a thousand years. Satan's going to throw you in prison for ten days, but I'm going to raise you to reign with me a thousand years. That'll keep you holding on. Maybe it's not ten days for you. Maybe it's ten years, forty years of suffering, but set it next to the millennium and then an eternity with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. And Paul's words become all the more true and precious. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. In comparison, our afflictions are light and momentary. So let's go. Let's go. Let's hold fast to Jesus' name. Let's lay down our lives. Those who suffer with Christ will also reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12 That's how this vision keeps you faithful. These brothers and sisters were faithful unto death because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. They spoke about Jesus to others. So what are you afraid of? What are you Afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Is there some kind of suffering that, that you're avoiding in the path of obedience? Some, some awkward conversation you, you don't want to have? It's not worth forfeiting this glory. Let this vision keep you faithful. And if you're being faithful, let this vision encourage you. I know some of you have taken a stand at work. Morally, you haven't gone along with the jokes or the so-called locker room banter. You haven't bowed the knee to the beast in that context. And that hasn't made you very popular. It's actually made you the target of their ridicule. You've become the brunt of everyone else's jokes for staying faithful to Jesus. And some days that means it's hard to keep showing up for work. Remember this vision. Jesus is going to raise you and you're going to reign with Him for a thousand years. The millennium says, this is totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Don't give up. And then finally, trust in the Lord to bring the kingdom. Trust in the Lord to bring the kingdom. Listen to this word from from I. Howard Marshall. He says, the millennium stands as a reminder that human effort will not bring about the golden age. The hope of the millennium signals the bankruptcy of human hopes and reminds us that we cannot build the future on secular hopes and promises. 
There is a paradox about progress. On the one hand, we have seen and continue to see dramatic advances in technology, which becomes ever more intricate and effective. But on the other hand, moral and spiritual progress is a different matter. Our generation has seen human cruelty on a scale unheard of before. And then Marshall recounts the numerous atrocities of the the 20th century. And he asks, Is it fair to draw the lesson that human inventiveness and skill has no answer to the dark side of life today? And I think we'd all say, yeah, that's a fair assessment. I even discussed with our women last Wednesday... In, I discussed this with uh, the women last Wednesday in relation to government. That while government is a legitimate provision from God, it's temporary. That our ultimate hope is not in governments to bring utopia. The perfect comes with Jesus. So set your hopes in His kingdom and pray for it to come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, thank you for this vision. We ask that you would bring heaven on earth soon. Come, Lord Jesus, and keep us faithful till then. Amen.